What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Before we get started on this finale of All the President's Minutes, I just want to say a huge thank you to every single one of the people who are out there listening. I want to say a huge thank you to our incredible guest list. I am completely flabbergasted over the expanse of the projects that have been completed under our banner, that there are just so many incredibly influential and inspiring people who've taken the time to unpack and excavate art with us on our shows, both Income Advice, Josie and the Podcats, Last 12 Minutes, The Mohicans, of course, One Heat Minute, all the President's Minutes and beyond. Thank you so much for your generosity. I want to give a special thank you to my incredible wife, Sam Howard, who has had to put up with me recording a show faster than I've ever recorded one before in one of the most chaotic years. So a huge thank you to her. Thank you to my best friend, Maria Lewis. Thank you to Garth Franklin, Stu Coote, Bill Gertbeery, and finally, Nikki Price for helping make this interview happen. that they sublimated their personalities into the personalities of the people they were playing. There is a magic in acting. People always ask me, well, how did you get this out of an actor? And the, but I, there is a mystery about good acting which I don't even totally understand till this day. And the more I'm involved with actors, the more impressed I am when it happens. It's, good acting is like doing that, <laughs> two things mm-hmm. at once. It's, it's an intellectual, rational thing in that they know that there are certain things they have to achieve for the story. And yet, really good acting is emotional, and it happens in an unconscious way, and it's totally spontaneous. It just has to happen in some way. And that's a gift. Uh, I think that part of it is that Bob Redford and Dustin Hoffman wanted so much to be a part of the story and know what it was like themselves. They spent time with the real people. When Bob Woodward and his wife first saw the film, she said, you know, I began to lose track of, she said, of who was who. Because she said, suddenly Bob got up and walked into the courtroom. And she said, he got up and he walked out of the courtroom. And he, I suddenly realized he was walking just like Bob Woodward. It just, and it wasn't even conscious on Bob's part. He had spent time with, with Bob Woodward. I kept, started calling him Bob Woodford and Bob Redwood. <laughs> and, uh, because the two characters melded. Uh, Carl Bernstein now says that he sees the film, and he now, when he thinks about what really happened, he thinks of it in terms of what it was like on the film, and that's becoming the whole reality for him. It's, uh, there is a magic when, when you stand behind the camera and you see life take place on screen. You know you can guide the actors into the right areas of work, and you can stop them when they go into the wrong areas. 
and you can explain things to them. But finally, when life takes over, that's the magic. And how they do that, it's very hard to explain. And that's the excitement of direct, part of the excitement of directing, is to really see that happen. I was doing a scene, uh, one of the first big scenes we did in the film, we did in a tiny little house in suburban Maryland. And it was the house of, supposedly the house of the bookkeeper for the committee to elect the president, who was the first big breakthrough they had, one of the big breakthroughs they had and uh, who had so much information. And it was just Jane Alexander who plays the bookkeeper. She's a woman who played Eleanor Roosevelt and Franklin mm -hmm. and Eleanor. Wonderful actress. And, and Dustin in the room, and Dustin trying to get this frightened woman to talk. And the suspense in there was extraordinary. I came back to the hotel to my wife after the first day of working there, and I said, I felt I should be paying $25 for my little apple box that I was sitting on. Uh, just the privilege of watching those two people work that way. Because you could just feel her terror at telling him those things, and you could feel how much he ached for that story, and the tension of, if I say one wrong word, I'm going to lose her. And every time she said one more thing, he realized how much she knew how important she was. And if he lost her, he'd never get her back again. He might never get the story. And at each point you realize, if they didn't get this, they might not have gotten this afterwards, and this story never would have been told. That this story came that close to not being told. And I think that's part of the suspense of the film. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Today, it is the final episode of the series. 130 episodes in a year, starting in January. We've examined every single frame of Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. And today I'm just absolutely chuffed. I'm completely starstruck over Zoom. I've been starstruck over Zoom before, as you might imagine. But uh, I think that this person that I'm speaking to has, and John Borson, who's Alan J. Pakula's producer and assistant on the set of All the President's Minutes all those years ago said, this person was one half of the scene of the film. And so why not end it with the person who opens this whole movie up? Judith Hoback Miller was her name, was the person that she portrays, but we know her as the bookkeeper. Academy Award nominee for four movies in 13 years, starting with The Great White Hope, which is very hard to track down if you're in Australia, but is absolutely just unfathomable that she didn't win. Kramer versus Kramer. She's played Eleanor Roosevelt throughout her entire life. She's been, she's an Emmy winner. I don't know if she's ever going to go for a Grammy, but she's definitely an Emmy winner, an Oscar nominee, a Tony winner, an American Theatre Hall of Famer, a teacher at the theatre faculty at FSU, and crossed the line to actually work at the National Endowment of the Arts in Washington for a number of years under the Clinton administration and then wrote a book. So then became an author writing very forthright about her time there. And she said that she's an observer of human behavior. It is my insane pleasure to welcome Jane Alexander to all the president's minutes. Well, thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Jane, uh, 
this is crazy, but you know, I'm sure you've spoken about this movie and you've spoken about this entire career. And often when I ask people, what's your relationship with this movie? Uh, they are passengers like me. They're people who are insane fans who love Pakula, who love this period in history, who have a vested interest in politics, are journos, so they've been inspired by it. But what's your relationship with this insanely great movie now all these years later? Is it something that people still bring up to you? Because for a, a person who's in such a short amount comparatively, I think your performance may be one of the most potent and powerful of any movie that I think I've ever seen. And I just wonder if you still feel that or, or if you can recall that for people listening, because I think we would get an absolute kick out of it. Well, it's the only movie that I've been in that I watch every couple of years. <laughs> yes. Because it, it, you said it, it's a masterpiece. It's just a brilliant film. And I know I'm only in it for, what, seven, eight minutes or something. Yes. But it was a pivotal scene, of course, when the bookkeeper decides that she's going to talk. Uh, yeah, I love this. I love the movie. I love that scene that I do with Dustin more than any other scene that I've ever done. And I've done, you know, I don't know. Hundred. Oh, I was going to say a lot. Let's just say a lot. <laughs> a lot of theater, but that for, for, for a film, that is my very favorite scene. And if you want, I can get into why, um, I would love that. There's one very rare interview because Mr. Pakula, unlike a lot of his contemporaries, was not a guy who did a lot of interviews. And we played a clip many episodes ago that I found. Thank God for things like YouTube because you can find these wonderful clips of him. And he was in the, he would just finish the movie. He just screened it for the first time. And he recalled going home to his wife who asked him how the shooting was on a day. And it would just happen to be the day that you and Dustin were shooting that that scene together and he said he was sitting on an apple crate behind the camera watching and he felt like he should be paying a ticket to watch every day <laughs> you two do that scene which i just thought was so amazing for him an act of his caliber he's like i feel like i should be paying to watch so i feel like we're on the right track and oh so pl so please tell us because i think about that quote so often and every episode i've done since seeing that i think man, if as a filmmaker, you know, you've got it in that one scene or you've, you know, the, the, the vision you had for this piece is like being realized in front of you. I think that that's really special. I never got the opportunity to work with Alan Pakula again, but I have to tell you, he was right. Maybe the greatest film director I worked with. Wow. I, I had, I had loved his movies, but what he did that day, I was doing a play at the Kennedy Center uh, with Douglas Fairbanks Jr., wow. <laughs> a, a Noel Coward play. And so I, I came at a day that was not a matinee and it was a hot summer day. And I was just wearing this little summer dress, you know, this blue dress that I would wear, wear backstage while I was making up or something. And uh, Pakula said, great, you're here, let's go. I said, no, but Alan, I haven't been in makeup or hair or I, and I haven't got my costume. He said, you look great. Let's go. So that's how it started. The taste started for me. And we were in this very small house, very small. And I, I just remember the room was tiny. And Gordon Willis, 
the great cinematographer had this humongous camera. <laughs> it took up half the room. And Alan had clearly thought carefully how he wanted to orchestrate the scene. He put me in this corner with just a lamp. Mm. So it was making kind of shadows and it was, and I felt trapped right, right then and there. I felt trapped in that corner with, <laughs> with this huge camera that I'm looking over and I'm seeing Gordon because Gordon was operating it himself that day, I think. And, um, and then right across, of course, a couple of feet away was Dustin, who was already perspiring because it was so damned hot. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it is summer. You, you, your follow-up scene, having a refreshing lemonade in that beautiful nook of trees feels so lovely and breezy. But that scene already in the suit at night, all, this, all the coffee, I mean, uh, yeah, it's, you can feel well, it. Alan set it up so beautifully that you barely had to act it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just, God, I mean, Dustin was wonderful. He was really wonderful because he has that silly little smile, you know, when he gets nervous and that little giggle and laugh. And, and I just remember wanting to get eased and back into the wall and just try to get as far away as possible. But Alan had set it up so beautifully that I love the fact that he loved it so much. That, that you just told me that. Um, and because I loved it too. It, it was not difficult to act. I mean, yeah. it was, but it was there. He yes. just gave it to us. And I think it, what you talk about is so wonderful in this movie that is something that we've, we've found in this excavation, so many episodes, is you guys had the you had a space that was tense, but you had the space to breathe. I love it's people are never going to, you know, I'm getting the greatest kick out of this. This is my greatest reward for this show is watching Jane sort of remember and, and start to like get into the bookkeeper mindset and lean back in this zoom chat like she does in the film. But that's, I think it's the air in the performance. So that's one thing I, in so many quick cutting movies or you hit your line and you hit your delivery and then the camera cuts to something else. I think what continues to strike everyone and is particularly in this bookkeeper scene, which is the pivotal scene of the entire film is the air. He lets you sort of hang off of a line. So you'll say a line and then he watches you just convey all of the conflict you have inside. I think that is just, that's almost unheard of in contemporary film. Like it, it takes real masters to have the trust to go, where they're going to hit the line and then I'm going to give them this moment. But you guys have like 10 of those moments just in that scene. It's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. I, as I say, I love it. It's my favorite scene of all. So when you're, when you're doing that scene and it's, and it's, you're being there and it's hot and Gordon Willis is with his giant camera. Um, and you guys had, had you had any chance to rehearse it yet or you were just doing it there? You were in the home, you would, you know, and that's, was that Judy Hoback Miller's home? I think that's what the apocryphal tales have been telling me in the internet research is that was actually her house. No, it wasn't her house. Not to my knowledge. No. I okay. never met her. Remember, Judy was very, she did not want any publicity, even at that time when we were making the movie. I never met her. Um, I know, you know, I've seen pictures of her and read about her, but no, I don't, I don't believe it was her home actually. Well, I mean, the producer might know, the producer would know, I don't know. <laughs> but it was never told to me that it was her house. One, one thing that I did want to ask then, because that has 
continually been part of the conversation, especially a few people, a few of the great people who spoke about your scene said, I don't know why Jane is named bookkeeper and not Judy Hoback Miller slash bookkeeper, because it has come in obviously in research and later years that you were that character or that person. And, and, and they're like, it's really strange that Jane is bookkeeper as, as opposed to everything else. And so now that I've got you here, do you know why that that was other than what you said about her publicity and, and, and her not wanting to be a part of it necessarily? Well, I think that she wanted to keep a low profile. Mm. Uh, she knew it would make huge waves. Yes. She knew it might even bring down the president. <laughs> of course it did. But um, I think, as I remember reading later, that her lawyer said, you know, you'll get 15 minutes of fame or something, but after that, it'll, people will be bothering you. Yes. So she decided not to reveal herself. What I love is, the fact that she was so young and I seemed so young and inexperienced in that scene as well. But she really was, she was pretty young. (laughs) And this is the great dual set of insights that you get is, and this movie is so striking is in the halls of power, especially at that time in the world, there's lots of men who are relying on women to do these tasks and like, I guess, be observers. Um, you, you're a birder as well, which I love. So like you're, you're just there observing human behavior and they're observing all these bad deeds. And then the weight, like the ethical and moral weight of their bad deeds then fall on some of these women. So you get, you know, Sally Aitken's character and, and Lindsay Krauss's Kayetti and you get yourself and throughout this movie, there's these women who've kind of like observers or witnesses or, you know, confessionals of bad deeds and you have to bear that weight to say it. And I think that that's what's so striking continuing about your scene is because she is a young woman and she does know the weight. And, you know, at this moment, the uncomfortable thing for Hoffman is he has to burden her with like, I need the information that you have because these guys have done a great job of setting it all on fire. Basically, there's no proof except you. Right, right. So you do this film obviously you'd had an incredible career up to this point in theater and you do this film and this takes you on a massive run. You watch this film every few years. What have you watched it with increasing frequency every few years after politics or has it always been every few years? Because I feel like watching your great interview and I'm going to link it in the description for folks who are listening. It's a great interview that Jane does sort of reflecting after writing a book, um, and, and I can put a link to that as well on C-SPAN, and just really forthright about your time there and, and the challenges you have sort of schmoozing to get things done when people weren't valuing the arts. Were you? Is this a movie that kind of you were like, all right, this is very Washington, this is very politics, this is, very, this is giving me some of that juice? You know, um, uh, I don't consciously say, now I'm going to watch All the President's Men, but the curious thing is, of course, with the election and everything, it was coming yes. up a lot on the TV this summer. And I just get hooked. I get hooked every time. And yes. I just sit down and I watch it. And I say, oh, God rest your soul, Alan Pakula. Just <laughs> terrific. It still works. It's still relevant and uh, wonderful. Oh, you'd obviously had the incredible breakout performance with the great white hope, which you won a Tony for. And then immediately it's adapted to the film and Oscar, like Oscar nominated. Was that a shock to you 
was it a shock to you to be nominated? Because I look at your performance and I'm like, that is a great Oscar performance. And many years later, Oscars do some funny things. They either go, how the hell did that happen? That nomination <laughs> slash win doesn't age well. And then others like yourself, it's like, oh, that was sometimes there's like lightning on a bottle and the Oscars get it right. So when you're looking back on your career and, and this sort of run of Academy Award nominations, did you think that right from the outset, oh, this like bit role is not going to be anything? Or did you, once you are there on set with Alan Bakula, you're like, this whole movie might be special based on my experience in it? Oh, I did think the movie was special. First of all, um, you know, Redford and Hoffman really were terrific. What a great casting. Oh, I mean, the two of them. The it's best. just like, they're just a dream team together. And uh, um, I had the feeling because it was so well put together and um, Carl Bernstein was around and, um, and Redford is a good producer. You know, I mean, he was there always working it. And yes, we would rehearse the day before. At the end of a given day, I remember I was called in before that scene at the end of the day and we'd go through the script. Uh, Goldman was not around often. No. That's an interesting thing, yes. you know? And, and Duff, Dustin, of course, loves improvisation. So there's all, there was always that. I started an improvisation. I never had a problem with it. Yeah. Um, but I always liked it when somebody, Pakula would then go away and set the script after yes. the, re the rehearsal. And, and it, um, so. Yeah. You find that you find the improvisations in the, in the rehearsals and then, and then Pakula would tweak, make the tweaks. That's right. Except, except Dustin, you probably <laughs> heard Dustin violates that. all. The time. <laughs> I, I have heard once or twice that Dustin will violate yeah. that. Slightly. But it's, it, I'm, I'm okay with that. So I had the feeling and given the subject matter, the yeah. weight of the subject matter, that it would be a huge hit. And of course it was. The one thing I have to ask you, because we've marveled at it through, throughout this entire film to, uh, uh, as we've examined it is, and there's really been only kind of one other example that has even come up with the close proximity of the actual events happening to you guys producing the thing, which yeah. the only other time that it's happened ever later comes out of two mentees of William Goldman, which is David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin. They make the social network based yeah. on all the events at the, the uh, inception of Facebook. And that comes out. And at the time people were like, what's this Facebook thing? Why do people care? And it's the only movie that now a decade later, since it's been made, people are like, Oh my God, that was so immediate and so resonant. And this is the only other movie that I can chart historically that, that, you know, escapes that TV movie burden of just like, you know, it doesn't have the quality. It doesn't have the resonance. How was that charge on set? Like you guys are making the Watergate movie when Watergate is still this huge thing in the culture. Exactly. It, it was charged. And I'm sure you've seen the cast list. The cast goes on forever. And ever. It's like 70 of the greatest actors who've ever worked all together. Exactly. And, 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 you know, the wonderful thing is I, I knew a lot of them and I'd worked with them in the theater or something like that. Lindsay Krauss or, in Eleanor and Franklin. And, and, and it, it, it was just a joy to have such great actors there. Jason Robards. Oh my God. Oh yes. my God. Oh my I mean, God. yeah, it was just an exciting movie and the timing. Yes, it was charged. It was charged. 
Well, we do this thing in the middle of these episodes and I feel like I've got to adhere to it just briefly. We watch the minute together. So we're going to, I'm just going to play you the last 40 seconds of this minute together, which is just the clacking of teletype, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so it's just to give Jane and I the quickest of breaks. We're going to watch it together right now and then we're going to come back and then we're going to finish talking about this great masterpiece that Jane was in this great scene and you know, her time in politics and how this movie for better or worse, continues to be so goddamn resonant in the current political climate. So we're going to watch it right now. It is the 137th minute. You've only got 40 seconds of time before it fades to black. And uh, it's been a joy doing all these episodes with you. So let's do one last one with Jane Alexander together. of times during this show jane people have said that history the bookends of history are a better ending than this movie could ever do so we've made this genius decision to start with a date on a teletype loud big like gun almost like guns firing clack 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 and then with the teletype this monumental moment just written along a teletype nixon resigns yeah just brilliant beautiful when, when people are seeing this, and this is, I guess, you being there, like watching it, because Watergate was so of the time and, and really dominating everyone's thought, this is a masterstroke because you're not bludgeoning people in the head with like, okay, well, Nixon is the villain of this movie and he's got to go. But now I think all these years later, it is actually a masterstroke because it doesn't bludgeon you in the head. It's like, it's, it's something that has aged perfectly. Like it, it's so rare that a movie does that where like a decision like this based on the time completely holds all of that power. I know. I know. It's a beautiful. Politics and women in politics and women who've had influence, like your, all of your incredible performances and affinity with Eleanor Roosevelt and yourself in the, in the arts. Um, but by the way, may I say something about oh. Alan Roosevelt? Oh, please. Do you, know, do you know what Alan was working on when he died? No. Well, he had come to me. Can't remember the year he died, but he had come to me and he said, "Jane, I wanted to do. I want to do the last years of Eleanor. And will you play the older Eleanor for me?" Oh my God! Nineteen ninety-eight. He passed. So late nineties. So he was, and he was on his way to his house in the Hamptons or Long Island when the, the pipe in the truck ahead came through the windshield and killed him instantly. And he was on his way, I was told later, to write that script. Oh my God. I know. I just... So I get, I weep when I think about it, you know, because he was so brilliant. He died too young to my mind. And I, I was so looking forward to working with him again on Eleanor. Wonderful. On Eleanor. So there oh you go. Oh my goodness. Talk about, talk about material and you two together again. That would have been 
something incredibly special, even more special than what you've already done. Imagine what a whole running time would have done with you two together, Jane, instead of eight minutes. <laughs> we might, we might, be, we might be talking about that movie. We're talking about that movie because he still was, a, you know, I think that's the other thing about this entire project is that Alan as an entity, I mean, you would know because working with all of these different great people at the time, Alan seems to escape the, well, I guess it, from a fan perspective, his name doesn't get mentioned as readily as, you know, your Coppola's and Scorsese's and, you know, the, the whole easy riders, raging bulls generation of filmmakers. Cause he was much more of a sort of an erudite guy. He was in the system for a long time, but nonetheless, his incredible resume um, continues to have people praise him much later. You know, the Pelican brief, even in the nineties, like Pelican brief is a ferociously entertaining movie, obviously clue or the president's man parallax, you know, his Sophie's choice, his whole career um, comes a horseman even at the time, which is terrific. It's his whole career has got all these gems in it. Um, people often talk about that central trio of the paranoia thriller movies, but he's a really rewarding filmmaker. He just never seemed to be a bit of a blowhard. He didn't have a, a legend around him. He just kind of did great work all the time. And he had a, he had a quiescence. Yes. When, when he was on set, I loved to look at him because he would just go into this very quiet, almost meditation, um, when, when they were setting up a shot or something. He, he wasn't like many directors off and busy. He was sitting right in his chair, letting everybody do the work they had to do. Very, uh, he resonated uh, a, a great power that way, very quiet. Yeah, he, he, was, he was very good at, he's like, I've got all the best people I've got the best production designers. I've got the best cinematographer. I've got the best actors. I've got the best script. I've got the best producers. I'm going to just sit here and wait until I'm ready to do my bit. And then I'm going to go and direct the living daylights out of this scene. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, that um, it's not all that megaphone stuff that we see parodied from the thirties. It's, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, it's him. You're right. I mean, he just brought an incredible team together and, uh, you know, George Jenkins for that mm. set. Oh my God. Oh my God. Bernie Pollock. Bernie Pollock was the costume supervisor. Yes. I worked with Bernie a couple of times. Just kind of genius. He never wanted to call himself a designer. He wasn't designing, but he was bringing things together so that everybody looked great. Well, that is one positive symptom of this show is that I think we can say that multiple people have bought corduroy in 2020 looking at Robert Redford on screen. Um, even though it's an ill-advised thing to do in 2020, many people have started to buy corduroy again. I've been toying it with myself. People are saying, Blake, you know, it's 2020. You probably suck at home in some form of quarantine. It's the best time to buy corduroy because no one's really going to see you in it. So um, I, I just get to tell people about it. In, in the, in the project that sort of kicked off our, podcasting deep dive um was michael mann's heat and when we talk about that film a lot and all the incredible actors and and those things michael mann himself is an engine he's a very sort of classical vision of an auto like very obsessive his hands in a lot of pies similarly has the great alchemy of a cast and people and people around but he's like an engine 
And this movie has been more like a gigantic, beautiful experiment, as in like every single part of this whole recipe has to be right. And the more that I deep dive on it, and even all the way to the final episode with yourself today, is, is you know, and you talking about Alan's way, it just, it, that's, it sort of reinforces, I guess, the myth of this movie as we've been building along, which is there are so many huge actors, huge screenwriters, huge cinematographers, huge production, whether it's costume, uh, designers and things like that and getting those all together and then having that central calming meditative influence in the middle that goes this is how it's all going to work together and then it yeah. just happens it's it, it it seems crazy yeah yeah jane what does this movie mean to you now in 2020 with all of the craziness that's happening because i think this it, i i had imagined at the beginning of the project that it would be a way to talk about not only cinema but to talk about history and to talk about politics and to talk about journalism, because this movie is so entangled with all those things. And so much of this movie in 2020 has been rolling between fantasy. You know, people are like, Blake, people would never be held to account. People would never resign. <laughs> people would never concede. Um, what, what, what is this movie meaning to you now after, a, you know, a, a a stint in politics and now in 2020 is it is it growing in your conception is it changing well you know looking back on the watergate scandal seems mild now compared to what uh our current and not for long president has been up to I mean, we just got slapped with one thing after another so that everybody came like, I can't even respond anymore, you know? <laughs> but what I love is the investigation, all, no boundaries for these guys. They were going to get the story. Yes. I love that and, and the respect that it gives to the media. And God knows they've been pummeled. Yes. Pummeled by this president, whom I haven't named in quite a long time, so I'm not going to at this point. But we all know who we're talking about. There's been times in this show, Jane, because of the speed since the sort of onset of the pandemic and especially the acceleration of sort of civil unrest in the country and protests, we've accelerated the show drastically. I never thought I would get it done in a year. And so it's it's a kind of it's multiple episodes a week. And there have been some times where we record on a Thursday or a Friday. And there's a huge news item and I'm speaking to a few people in a row and I'm scheduling the episodes and I'm thinking, well, you know, this is okay. The episode's going to drop within the next 24 hours. What could happen? What could happen that's going to make what we've talked about not relevant? And so many times I've put the episode up and I've read the blurb and just checked that everything was up there so that the listeners have got the show. And I go, if you, that feels like that may as well have been a month ago and it's days because the news cycle has accelerated and there has been some other insanely large story that has dropped in our laps. And, and as you said, like that, that pummeling of like, it's just coming at you from every direction. It's been, and even since the tale of this election, there's been some, you know, a lot of rhetoric and a lot of nonsense and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, really straight face political malfeasance right in the media. Um, but I think that people are re the, the media right now feels like Alan Bakula, as you described him, is just kind of sitting there going, 
this can't actually happen. This is all kind of nonsense. So we're just going to wait until all of the lawmakers make up their minds and do their things. And we're going to go through this process. But at the end of the day, a lot of this is baseless and it's just trying to incite rage and fury and frustration. And we're just going to stay really calm because this isn't going to happen. So it's been a, this has been the wildest ride. I don't ever know people listening to the show long after are going to have a ride through the news cycle and the pandemic and the civil unrest of 2020 with the show and the guests of this show. But yeah, it's a crazy, it's been a crazy journey. It has been a crazy journey. And, you know, here I am in my eighties now, and I have to tell you, I've experienced a lot in my long life. Never in my life could you imagine a year like this ever. I mean, you couldn't even write it, right? It feels stupid. If someone wrote this, you would go, stop. (laughs) You would go, that's too much embellishment. Can we just get back to the facts? I know. I know. I know the past. Think of the past month. It was only a month ago that the president said that he had the the disease. It was only um, six weeks ago, five weeks ago. Yeah. Beginning of October. Here we are. I mean, whoa, that's big enough just by itself. I think 2020 has had about 75 Watergates and then just, there's not just one back in 72. It's just one Watergate that, you know, and a long unrelenting pursuit for truth can take down a president. And I think, and I, and I have in the great list of actors, producers, journos, you know, cinephiles that have been on this show, creative people, it's like every, almost every day there's a new something that a, one of those people is like, oh, this will be the thing. You know, I, all the way back to his vulgarity around grabbing ladies by their nether region, someone had to go, well, this might be his Watergate. And that was, <laughs> and that's four years ago. Like that's a long time ago. And, yes. and, and so, yeah, it is, it's a really strange time. And, uh, but, but what has kept me sane um, is, revisiting this masterpiece and watching just sort of tireless and unrelenting pursuit and just knowing that every day you have to be vigilant and you have to be passionate and watching the real life journalists and people doing this um, has been inspirational and then watching the art that's made from it that continues to inspire all this conversation has been great. So um, Jane, I just, I don't know how to say it any better than it's just been an absolute thrill to talk to you to put a big punctuation spot uh, on this entire project. And uh, look, it's, uh, and, and I think some of the people listening, when they hear you say, after all my long life, this is the craziest year is going to go, well, if Jane says it, it must be true. Cause I'm not, it's not just me and my friends on Twitter. Uh, this is someone who's lived a life and it's crazy, but it's such a thrill to talk to you. And thank you so much for your time and your work in this film is truly mesmerizing and unbelievable and enduring and talking to you about it today has just been a joy so thank you well thank you i've enjoyed myself so much talking with you and to know that you have so many people out there who are just bent on hearing every single minute of this (laughs) is very exciting i love what you're doing thank you thank you i can't wait to see it all put together When you think about the final word, I can't think of anything better than Jane Alexander having the final word on this incredible project. Thank you so much for following along and being a part of it. 
But there's just one final thing. Where to next? Now, if I'm like Woodstein, what am I going to do? I'm going to check in with my editor. Let's see what he's got to say. If you ever do uh, some sort of a one Zodiac minute, you know, it's you're just adding fuel to the fire is all I it would say. It has to be Zodiac, man. <laughs> Paul? What? I cover crime in Vallejo. Yeah, I cover crime in Vallejo. Just one do that. I, I, like, I like puzzles. I do them a lot. He gave himself a name. This is the Zodiac speaking. Liam has preemptively taken the claim to fame of tipping me over the edge um, uh, to doing the Zodiac podcast, which I can uh, safely say on this show, he's right, because it was just that final nail in the coffin that if I didn't do it, someone else was going to. It was Gentlemen. definitely not Manola Dargis <laughs> or Poppleman. Several crime newsmen are wearing lapel buttons reading, I am not Paul Avery. Hey, bullet. It's been a year and a half. You gonna catch this fucking guy or not? Our next future project, and I think Total Rebooters will get a kick out of this, is called Zodiac Chronicle, which we are diving into David Fincher's Zodiac. Um, I I pronounced it would be 12 episodes, um, all named on the signs of the Zodiac. I'm going to reveal for the first time ever to the Total Reboot fans that it is now going to be 24 episodes. Wow. Two parts for each Zodiac sign. I'm not the Zodiac, and if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. When someone is working visually to make the meaning of the narrative and deepen it, is just you know this is this is why we do podcasts like this. <laughs> so. Does anyone think the suspect warrants further investigation?